0: through this series, Sinners and Saints, which has been looking at particular personalities within Scripture, and some of them have been sort of very famous personalities that you have probably heard in Sunday school, and uh, then others have literally been unnamed, Uh, the woman who washes Jesus' feet, and uh, last week, or was it the week before, I'm losing track, the crippled man by the pool of Bethsaida. Um, so we have unnamed and named and this morning we're going to look at Elijah, one of the giants, um, one of the mighty and um, let me just sort of bring you up to speed on the prophet Elijah and where we're going to pick up the story in 1 Kings 19. If you have your Bibles with you, you can put your finger in at First Kings 19 because that's where we're going to start. But I just I just want to tell you about this prophet Elijah and give you a little background on him. And where we are meeting him in his story, Elijah was called to be the voice of God in Israel at a time when it was pretty much at an all time low. Uh, king Ahab was a very weak king, and Queen Jezebel, his wife, was evil and they promoted Baal and Asherah worship. they were gods of fertility and growth and agriculture that the nation of Israel had turned to under their leadership. And so God raises up Elijah and Elijah prays that it will not rain for three years. Essentially, God saying, okay, fertility gods, do your thing without any rain, see how you do. And so because of this, he's actually a wanted man. And so he is hunted, and for those three years, he actually lives at various times in caves being fed by ravens, and then he's in the house of a widow with her son who have nothing. He, he spends these three years essentially in caves and hiding and in poverty with a price on his head. He's kind of Israel's most wanted. And so just going through that, if you can imagine three years living like that, you can't imagine that his emotional state is all that stable to begin with. And then in the meantime, Jezebel's killing off a whole bunch of other prophets, so many that Obadiah actually had hidden away a hundred of them in caves to try to save their lives, it says in 1 Kings eighteen four. And then finally we come to the big showdown in Elijah's ministry. After three years, Elijah's, you know, really ready for some success after being hunted down all this time. And so in chapter 18, we get the account. He he faces King Ahab down. He has him summon his 450 priests of Baal. He sets up two altars on Mount Carmel and he challenges the 450 prophets to have their God light the fire. And they, most of you, I'm sure, remember the story. They dance all day and they cut themselves and they chant and they do all of these different things and their altar remains unlit. And then... Elijah speaks to God in his altar after being doused in water until water is filling all the trenches. He speaks to God and God just incinerates the entire altar with fire. So he slays the prophets, he sends King Ahab packing after this, he, and then he prays for rain and after three years of no rain it begins to rain. So he prays for fire and he gets fire, he prays for rain and he gets rain and then filled with the power of God he actually outruns Ahab's chariots back to the city, the capital city of Jezreel and I think he ran there to basically witness the undoing of the current government, right? He thinks this is it. This is revival beginning. This is, you know, everything is going to turn around with this amazing ministry that I've done through God and God has done through me. And so he's expecting to see that Israel's going to dethrone Jezebel and tear down the bells and return to God. But he gets to the city and that doesn't happen. When Ahab finally gets to the city, he He tells Jezebel the bad news that all this rain that you're now seeing falling on Israel finally after three years is not because we won. Baal is not sending the rain, it's actually Jehovah who has sent this rain. Elijah won the battle. And rather than humbled, she's angry. And so we see in 1 Kings 19, to 9 now, we pick it up. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Which is a very convoluted way of saying, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> she wasn't one with words maybe. But Elijah got it right? Elijah understood. He said, then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again and a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of the food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah's world basically collapses after this incredible high in his life. And I don't know whether any of you are similar in that way. When you're kind of at a high peak and then something happens, it seems you fall all the harder right after that peak in your life. Something just pulls the rug out from underneath you and then, In in Elijah's case, it was Jezebel. He could face down Ahab. He could face down the 450 prophets of Baal. He could call down fire. He could call down rain. We're not going to get into it, but for some reason, there was something about Jezebel that just unnerved him. He couldn't handle the fact that this was not enough, that he hadn't yet done enough to finally get this queen out of Israel. And suddenly this spiritual giant, this champion of God, trembles in fear and he runs and he isolates himself and he lays down and he wants to die. So you have to understand who Elijah is. You've got to get your sense of the strength of this man. He, uh, the prophet Elijah was such a powerful figure in the history of Israel. He's the prophet most compared to Jesus. A lot of people, as you go through the gospel, and are asking about who Jesus is, they think that he's Elijah come back from heaven just because of the sheer power and the number of miracles that Jesus was doing. They were thinking this must be Elijah. He must be returned. How does a man that powerful to be compared to the miracles of Jesus, how does a man, a giant like that, with God on his side, end up exhausted in the desert asking to die? Jesus' brother James actually wrote a little bit about Elijah in his letter. He says, just a little byline, he says in James 5.17, he says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Or your translation might say, Elijah was just as human as we are. But the word translated nature or human in the text there is actually, the Greek is homeopathos which means of similar passions or with the same emotions. And so what, what James is saying is that, you know what? Elijah was, had the same kind of passions we do. He had the same kind of emotions we do. And that's pretty encouraging. That's the encouraging part, and that's what we're going to look at today. Elijah, as close to God and as used by God and as powerfully filled with the Spirit of God as he was, was a man with emotions just like us. And those emotions, they can get the better of us even someone like Elijah, even people filled with the Spirit of God, even people who you look up to and think are you know, the most powerful, well-balanced, stable people who have everything on their side can end up like Elijah. So let's just take a look at these 10 or so verses of 1 Kings and a little bit further and we'll see what condition Elijah finds himself in. But then what we want to look at is see how God responds to Elijah and how he may be responding to us. If you, like Elijah are really curled up under a juniper bush this morning. And, you know, the greatest feat that you think you can accomplish is just eating breakfast. Because sometimes we're there, right? Breakfast is a big job. So the first thing we see here is that God meets Elijah where he is. And God will meet you wherever you are. Elijah is out of strength, he's out of miracles, fear of the circumstances he's in has overcome him, he looks at Jezebel and the death of so many other prophets of God around him, and he fears for his life, and he runs. Verse 3 says, he ran for his life to Beersheba, Beersheba. and many of you will remember the descriptive phrase of the nation of Israel, The, the promised land of Israel, north to south is what? It's all the lands from Dan to Beersheba, right? That's how they describe Israel, and on the fourth day of our trip, we will be in Dan, So if you want to check out Dan, you come on that trip, and we will be right there. We're not going to make it to Beersheba. That's the far south. But from north to south, Israel is Dan to Beersheba. And so Elijah runs to the very border of God's promised land. He's at the very southern edge of it. He's at the very edge of the land where God has said, "'If you dwell here, you will be blessed.'" This is where my people are to be found in this promised land. And Elijah leaves his servant there, we see in verse 4, and then he goes another day's journey into the wilderness. So he's not in Israel anymore. Elijah has fled the presence of God's blessing and God's promise. He's gone beyond the edge. He's physically leaving the presence of God. He's in the wilderness now. He even leaves his servant behind and he isolates himself. He basically says, you're better off without me. Where I'm going, you don't want to come. I'm no good anymore. I'm leaving you. I'm going. Have any of you been there? Where it's just... You're done, and you run, and you run to the edge, and then you run beyond the edge, and you tell everybody around you, you're just better off without me. It's enough. He said to himself, or he himself went a day's journey, it says, into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. So not only has he run now away from the presence of God into the wilderness, isolated himself, He says these things. He says it's enough. And that's sort of an interesting translation of that word because if you were to look in the Hebrew, the word enough is rob. And the idea that the translators, I think, may be trying to get enough across here is that that Elijah is saying something like enough is enough. Right? Like "I've, I've had enough, enough is enough, that kind of colloquialism. But that word rob, when it's used... As an adjective, it actually means many or multitudes are great. In in 1 Kings 10.10, the the same word is translated as exceeding much or too much. So to say that he said it's enough, it actually seems like kind of a weak translation here to say Elijah just had enough. I think Elijah is saying here, no, he's had more than enough. He's had exceeding much. Elijah's had too much. He lays down under the broom tree and he says, God, it's too much. This is too much for me. It's not just enough, it's more than enough. It's so much, he says, that he wants to die because I am no better than my fathers. And when Elijah uses that phrase, he's basically referring to the fathers of Israel and Abraham and Moses and those people. He says, I don't measure up. I don't measure up to my family. I don't measure up to my ancestors. I don't measure up to God. I don't even measure up to myself. I don't measure up to the task I'm a failure. I might as well not even be here. Now, I know in an audience this size, and we've been touched enough by suicide here at Lakeside and in this community, that people get there, right? That they just can't be enough. That they are a failure to their family, to God, to the task, to life. He says, I don't even want to be here anymore. He says, take away my life. Not only can spiritual giants like Elijah find themselves despairing even unto death. Let's be encouraged here. Jesus, too, fully God, fully human, felt the same level of despair. He was tempted as all others were tempted. What can we do with words like this in the mouth of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he goes with his disciples... Jesus, wisely not isolating himself, goes with his disciples to pray, wisely going to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, even so says in Matthew 6, 26, 38, he says to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus' soul was troubled, disturbed, even unto death he's been in this place where elijah's been he's been in this place maybe where some of you have been and i don't know where we all are today on the spectrum of despair maybe you're just tired maybe you just need a good breakfast maybe you're just discouraged maybe you're despairing a little bit maybe you're feeling weak or maybe you are here with elijah and jesus wondering if it's even worth continuing Jesus has been to that place, Elijah's been there, both of them have walked this road, but it's not a place that we are going to be alone if we are there. Even if we try to take ourselves outside of God's border, God is waiting for us in that place too, and notice that even as Elijah feels like his life should end, he does not assume that he has the right to take his own life. He pours out that raw, honest emotion to God, asking God to end his life, take it away, but he's not assuming that his life is his own to take. And what we learn is that God has other plans for Elijah. God has other plans for you. Whether you're this far into the wilderness with Elijah or maybe just in Beersheba on the borders, just weary and discouraged on your daily walk, God has plans to bring you a word of hope and refreshment. So God will meet us where we are, no matter where we are. And then let's look and see how God meets Elijah's needs. First of all, he meets his physical needs. So Elijah's curled up under a juniper bush in the desert, and I think the first thing that God gives to Elijah is some sleep. As fearful for his life as he might be, Elijah just finally gets some rest physically. D.A. Carson is one of our current generation's Excuse me, most insightful theologians, and a Canadian too, so go D.A. But he wrote in his book, Scandalous, he said this, sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep, not pray all night, but sleep. I'm certainly not denying that there may be a place for praying all night. I'm merely (laughs) insisting that in the normal course of things and spiritual discipline obligates you get the sleep your body needs. Psalm 3.5, David says, I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. Psalm one twenty seven two says, He grants sleep to those that he loves. And so the first thing God does for Elijah is he just gives him a good night's rest. He cares for his physical needs. And then God sends an angel, but look at what the angel does. Does the angel come to Elijah and say, Fear not, Elijah, Does he give him a pep talk? Does he exhort Elijah to repent of his doubt? No. The angel actually literally cooks him a meal. All the angel of the Lord does to begin with is cook. He touches Elijah and he says, eat something. And it's not even like miraculous manna bread. It's literally bread baked on coals, it says, baked on hot stones with a jar of water. Imagine waking up in the morning and an angel has baked you fresh bread, right? God knows how good fresh bread is baked taste smells like right he knows he made it he's not under any illusion that fresh baked bread smells really good i imagine all of heaven smells like fresh baked bread (laughs) (laughs) but this is what elijah wakes up to like you can smell it now can't you So he gets a good night's sleep. Unlike some Christians, God is not hyper-spiritual. God does not presume that because someone is dejected and in despair that it is entirely a spiritual problem. The angel does not pull out the spiritual checklist and start diagnosing Elijah's faith. He doesn't say, Okay, Elijah, have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all known sin? Have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you thanked God? Have you rejoiced in all things? Have you worshipped? No. No. He just bakes them some bread, right? He gives them breakfast. God knows Elijah is a man, and sometimes you don't need prayer or a lecture or a sermon. You need sleep and a warm breakfast and a quiet morning. And that's where God starts with the very broken. That's where God starts with the very disheartened. God made us. He knows what we need. Psalm 103.14 is such a great verse. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. What's he referring to there? Well, if you go back to Genesis 2-7, we get the details of God's creation of humankind in this way. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. You see, God made us both physical and spiritual. God remembers that he formed us out of dust and then he breathed his spirit into us to make us alive. And God made the physical and God made the spiritual. And the physical is no less sacred than the spiritual. And we can sometimes forget that. You know, we are never going to stop being physical beings. We are going to get a new physical body in the new creation and continue to be physical beings even in heaven. And so God remembers that we are physical and spiritual. Elijah just needed a compassionate touch. He needed a warm meal and he needed rest. And so the angel gives him those. And we need those. When we get run down, when we're not sleeping, when we're not eating, we need to sleep and eat and care for our physical selves. We might even need medical care to get us physically back in place so that we can be emotionally and spiritually healthy. So God meets Elijah there first. Then God meets Elijah's emotional and spiritual needs. He listens to Elijah. He cooks and then he relocates him back into the presence of God and he ministers to him with the word of God. Look at me. Look with me here. at Verse 8, he says, and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So now God has sustained him physically. He basically says, okay, Elijah, let's get you back where you should be. Let's get you to Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb actually has another name. It's Mount Sinai. It's that place where God showed up before and gave the law to Moses. And he's been known to show up there. And Elijah actually goes into a cave on the side of Mount Sinai. Now, that's something interesting because centuries before this, in Exodus 33, you remember Moses wanted to meet God. He wanted to see the glory of God. He wanted to encounter God, just as Elijah needs to meet God here again. And some commentators believe that Elijah may have very well went to the same cleft in the rock, the same cave in Mount Sinai, where Moses went and God covered him as he passed so he could see him. And so here you have Elijah on Mount Sinai, in the cleft of the rock, encountering God. Verse 9 says, The word of the Lord came to him. It doesn't say an angel came to him. It says the word of the Lord came to him. Who's the word of the Lord? Right? This, this is God. This is Jesus. This is God himself coming to minister to Elijah. And so first, God was Elijah's doctor. He had to get him physically well. Now God is his priest or his pastor. He needs spiritual care. And like fresh bread is to the body, so the word of the Lord is to our souls. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says, You know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So God says... Elijah, you've had bread, but you don't just live by bread alone. Now you need my word. And that's what he gave him. He says the word of the Lord came to him. He needs spiritual food. And God starts with a question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And the thing that we have to keep in mind, as we return to the Lord... Right as we are in this place that Elijah is in and we need refreshment and we need recovery, we need to come back from the wilderness of despair and we get rested and we get refreshed and then we need to realize that we need to go to the word of the Lord and when we go to the word of the Lord and it begins to speak to us, understand that when the word of the Lord speaks to us and maybe ask them some questions about where we're at in our life, always keep in mind that when God asks a question, it's not for God to gain any information. It's not like God doesn't know why Elijah's there. God is fully aware of everything he needs to know about Elijah. When God asks us a question, or when God tests us, or when God reveals things, it's not so that he finds out, it's so that we find out. It's so that we learn. It's so that we discover what's in our heart. It's so that we discover what we're about that we can learn about ourselves. God already knows exactly what the answers to all the questions are in our heart. But he will prod us. He will test us so that we can discover the condition of our heart and discover our relationship with him. And Elijah's answer unearths so much about where his heart and his head are at. Just look at what he answers. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, I'm the last one left and they seek my life to take it away. And you can see in his answer that Elijah has just turned completely inward. And and who blames him? Okay, nobody's blaming Elijah. Three years hunted in the wilderness and then this huge success and then he still has a price on his head and everybody hunting him down. I would get a little introspective as well myself. But you can see where his answer is at. It's it's all about what everybody else has done and let him down. He's the last one left. He's the only one that's doing any good and and they're trying to kill him too. Everyone else is bad, but I'm good and they're even after me. In, in a way, he's even blaming God. It's like, I've kind of done everything I can possibly do. You still have not set your people free from this spiritual bondage they're in. I, I don't know what's left. This is where I'm at, God. But then we see how God speaks to Elijah. He says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountain and broke it in pieces, the rocks, before the Lord. That's a wind. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped up his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So the text here says that God was not in the wind, nor the earthquake, nor the fire. But the text is not saying that God is never a wind or never an earthquake or never a fire, obviously, because the text says that as he passed, all of those things happen, And God's been all of those things before as he appeared to his people. God has been a burning bush and a pillar of fire. And at the end of the book of Job, God speaks out of a windstorm. At Pentecost, God comes to them as a rushing wind. Right here on Mount Sinai, he came shaking the mountain as an earthquake. So God is all of those things, but he's not those things for Elijah. For Elijah, he comes as a still, small voice. It's as though God is saying, don't forget, Elijah, that I am wind, I am fire, I am power, I am pure, I am righteous, I am justice, I am God, I am all of those things, Elijah, still. But for you today, I am compassion, I'm mercy. You can come out of your cave because I'm here for you. God's been very compassionate with Elijah. He's been very careful with Elijah, but still correcting. And his question is simple. Why are you here, Elijah? And that question leads to a recommission. It leads to a new hope. He basically kind of causes Elijah to rethink why is he there? God has heard Elijah's answer and in response he tells him, you're not alone, I'm still in charge, I still have a plan. You need to go and commission a new prophet. You need to pass the mantle on to the next generation and you need to establish a king and you've been afraid of circumstances that didn't turn out to your plan but they're all working to mine. I have found you a faithful helper. And by the way, Elijah, there's 7,000 others who don't worship Baal. This is not over by any means, Elijah. I know that this has been a burden on you, but this is not done. And so God comes to Elijah with a word of grace and he comes to us with the same grace through Jesus Christ. And I was reading this, I was thinking, where is Jesus in this text? I think he's the word of the Lord. If you press me on it, I I think he is the word of the Lord coming. Jesus was part of the Trinity forever. He didn't just show up at the birth. And so I think the word of the Lord came to him to minister to him in that way. But I think he's also here, Jesus is also here in this text symbolically. Look again with me at how God comes. In verse 11, God told Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain. So that was the instruction. Go out, Elijah, and stand on the mountain. And then God comes as earth, wind, and fire... But notice Elijah didn't actually go out at that time. It's only after the hurricane and after the firestorm and after the earthquake passed, then Elijah hears a low whisper and then he puts on his cloak and then he leaves the cave. When God was earth and wind and fire, it was the rock that protected Elijah. It says the rocks were smashed and the mountain was torn to pieces before the coming of God. And then a whisper coaxes him out to meet God in quiet and gentleness and peace. Well, symbolically, we understand here that we have a rock that protects us from the full force of God's presence. We have a rock without whom we could not stand before God. We have a rock. That rock is Jesus Christ, and Jesus mediates our relationship with God. We have a rock that was smitten and struck on the cross. A rock that was struck just like Moses struck the rock in the wilderness so that instead of water, from Jesus the Holy Spirit could flow to God's people. It's through Jesus being struck as the rock, being broken and smitten, that God is able to come to us gently and the Holy Spirit can come and work in us. We have a rock that was smitten for us so that God could come to us with a still, small voice and minister to us. I don't know where you may be today in your situation. You may just be tired. You may just be weary. You may just need a good night's sleep. You may be a little farther along the, pers- the, the spectrum. You know, Maybe you're discouraged or despondent. Maybe you're a little farther along and you are despairing. Maybe you're as far along as Elijah and Jesus and your soul is troubled even unto death. You just wonder what value you are to anybody anymore regardless what happened in the past. But this story is here to encourage us, right? Remember what James said. James said, Elijah was a man just like us. As great, a mighty prophet and warrior, so filled with the Spirit, able to do miracles and everything else. Yeah, Elijah was just like us. He had days where he wanted to die. But God comes to him and ministers to him in his physical need and in his spiritual need. And God has come to us in the form of Christ Jesus to minister to us. Don't run from God. Don't run to the edge and then out into the wilderness. Don't isolate yourself from God's people. Don't condemn yourself as no better than your fathers. Don't turn away from the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord needs to come to you. Get into the Psalms and into the Scriptures and into the Gospels and have the Word of the Lord come and minister to you. Know that God is still God. God is still wind and fire and power. God is still in control. God is still almighty. But He comes to His children with a whisper of compassion and hope. Even when everything seems lost, God has your future and His plan for you is good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. For some of us, we need to hear it because we're right there or near there with Elijah. Some of us may need to hear it because we just need to get some understanding of other people who are there. I mean, maybe there's some people here. I mean, I remember a time in my life when I was young enough when this never occurred to me, just that I didn't have a bad day like this. And so these texts are are there for those people too to understand that, hey, even the mighty fall, even the strong struggle. And so we need to remember that you remember that we are dust and that you are our refuge, that you are the cave and the cleft that we run into and that there you minister to us by your word. Father, I just pray for anyone here today that may be feeling discouraged, who may be feeling like they don't measure up, like they just want to curl up under a bush and die, that you're not done with them. You'll come to them. You'll meet them. You'll minister. You'll do so through your people and your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.